Not everything on Capitol Hill is totally partisan. Take the myriad of threats from China. Two senators from opposite parties recently urged the Federal Trade Commission to investigate the phenomenon of TikTok. For more on this and a few other topics, Virginia Senator Mark Warner. Senator Warner, good to have you back. Tom, thanks for having me. And let's talk about the Federal Trade Commission and your call to have them investigate TikTok. And I got to tell you, you and I are about a few months apart in age. I've never looked at TikTok and won't put it on my phone, but apparently a lot of people do. So what is the major concern here now? Well, I have to acknowledge I'm not a regular TikTok user either, but TikTok is the only social media platform that's still growing exponentially. I mean, we've seen decline in Facebook, we've seen decline in YouTube, but TikTok is extraordinarily popular. And it's based on the presumption of you don't want to be networked with people you know necessarily. You want to be networked with people who have similar tastes or videos that they think based on your actions you might like. By definition, that means TikTok has to know a lot about you before their algorithms can decide what other kind of crazy videos they want to send you. Our concern is that TikTok is owned by ByteDance, a Chinese firm. And while they've tried to separate the American branch and data from the Chinese data, it appears they've not been successful. There was a report that Chinese engineers were getting access to this information and this data. Part of that, I think, due to the fact that the Chinese law requires the Communist Party to say to every business in China, you know, your ultimate responsibility is not your shareholders, but is the Communist Party of China. So we've asked that the FTC investigate whether there's been any kind of deceptive practices here, whether people's information is appropriately protected. We've not gotten a formal response yet, and I'm not sure the FTC would actually say if they've started an investigation. They usually do that somewhat in quiet, but there was another report that there may have even been some sale of data. I'm not sure. Um, Well, I'm not saying I wouldn't have my kids on TikTok. Frankly, my kids are in their 20s and early 30s, so I think they're going to make their own decision, but I would be cautious. Right. And what can the FTC even do about a Chinese-owned company if it finds they purloined and sold data? Well, first of all, this is maybe unique coming out of me, uh, but President Trump was right on this one. President Trump was the first to raise concerns, and they set up a relationship whereby Oracle was supposed to help guarantee the security of American data. That's not been fully laid out yet, but the FTC does have the power. TikTok is saying your data is totally protected. No foreign actor has any access to it, and then it's proven that there is access foreign actors, Chinese engineers, or Chinese government engineers, I should say, have access, then um, FTC could go all the way to shutting TikTok down. Now, normally FTC doesn't go that far, but it does have the power. All right. Well, then we'll see what happens then. At this point, you say no answer, so it's really a dark hole at this point. It's still a dark hole, but I think we've definitely raised the focus level. TikTok and the U.S. government have been negotiating for some time on a new arrangement that would further guarantee data security. It would be good if we had a little more transparency on that. We are speaking with Virginia Senator Mark Warner. And I also wanted to ask you about something else that's apparently coming up in the Senate, if everyone can get healthy here, and that is the semiconductor spending prospects. That bill has ballooned a great deal. It's basically an issue for the industry, but the government as party to the chip shortages and having trouble sourcing its electronics, in some cases military platforms, How fast could that really have an effect? And are there too many strings attached to the money, do you think, that may work against the actual stated objectives of the bill? Well, Tom, this bill has really three component parts. It's got the chips portion, and that is to make sure that we do the R&D and build additional chip manufacturing facilities here in the United States. 
back in the 90s, we controlled about 35% of the total chip production in the world. Today, we're down to about 12%. In East Asia, South Korea, Taiwan, and China, we've seen those numbers completely reverse. Taiwan controls most of the leading edge chip production in the world. And with Taiwan being vulnerable to China, that is a national security concern. China itself, PRC, has put about $100 billion, more than we're even talking about, into chip production. As we see shortages of chips from cars to uh, leading edge chips in our military jets, to have more of an American supply chain is critically important. You know, this is a worldwide competition. We passed the Senate bill. We passed the CHIPS bill. Um, but in that ensuing year, we've seen countries like Germany, France, and a number of big European countries become very aggressive as well in this competition. And this was in the original bill, but, you know, frankly, it never got as much attention. And that's where we also have American and Western supply of next-generation wireless technology. Some of your listeners may have recalled the debate about Huawei and 5G wireless technology. This really was the first time where a Chinese company, Huawei, and another Chinese company, ZTE, started to dominate the market. And um, Huawei in particular has proven to provide security concerns. You know, if you go to a country and say, hey, don't buy Huawei, there's not a corresponding Western enterprise. There are a couple of Western companies, uh, Samsung, Ericsson, uh, Nokia. But what we're trying to do is move out of this existing system into what's called open radio access network, give Western companies a much greater dominance when we move to that next generation. And there's about a billion and a half dollars in the bill for ORAN. And then finally, those dollars are all actually committed. There are a couple hundred billion dollars of additional potential funding. And let me add potential. It's none of this has been appropriated. It's only authorized for development of technology hubs in various parts of the country different than, you know, Silicon Valley or Boston or the Research Triangle, so we can try to spread some of the wealth, so to speak, around technology. There's money in here to dramatically increase funding at the National Labs and at the National Science Foundation. So it's a pretty major bill. Sure. So then that would mean the authorization, though, if not the direct immediate appropriation. Yeah, the chips and the ORAN money, that's been appropriate. These are emergency appropriations. The authorization dollars for the NSF, for DOE labs, or the tech hubs, that still has to go through a normal appropriation process. Right, but they have the prospect of some really big plus-ups then, say, in fiscal 23. Yes. All right, and speaking of fiscal 23, is the Senate going to get its job done and also the National Defense Authorization Act? Uh, You're it. Well, I think we're not going to get the NDAA done before the August recess, but I do believe when we return... The first order of business will be the NDAA, and Jack Reed, as the chairman of the Armed Services Committee, does a good job of shepherding that bill through. The balance of the appropriations bills, it is very frustrating to me that they don't seem to get done in a timely fashion, and we end up with these omnibuses, which, again, maybe your listening audience may be the only ones that understand what omnibus and some of this terminology mean, but um, I'm fearful that we will you know, default to that vehicle rather than the individual appropriations bills. And obviously, it's been made more difficult this year with Senator Leahy as chairman of the Appropriations Committee having a broken hip and not been able to be in the Senate as much the last few weeks. Sure. And in a related area, you've been looking at the Technology Modernization Fund, which agencies are finally starting to use to some degree. What are your prospects there? We really, there's a kind of a dueling prospects. I mean, we all know that the IRS needs enormous amounts of additional funding, upgrading of technology, increase of personnel, and that would have been included and maybe could still be included in some form of reconciliation, although 
I think the IRS funding prospects have probably gone down. The funding for the IRS, which is critical, is in direct competition with the technology and modernization fund. This is a revolving fund of we would like a billion dollars, but it's you know that probably be it was closer to the hundred million dollars that would upgrade the technology on a base savings then recoup to put back in the fund. And it's it's just crazy that we're not doing this. You know, we decrease the efficiency of our federal workforce. We make their lives much more challenging without this technology upgrade. It's kind of nuts and boltsy, but it is really important. And it's paired as well with an area where I'd love to see. A, there is also, I've talked to the GSA Administrator Carnahan on a building development fund. I mean, you know, we, we have a lot of aging buildings. Post-COVID, we've got you know, excess capacity. So can we move out of some of this leased space that the government uh, has taken, not just here in the DMV, but all over the country, and consolidate our federal workers back into federally owned space? There's been estimates that we could save up to $25 billion if we could do that, but we again need to both get some additional resources to start that off, but also some of this archaic congressional scoring process to make sure that if we actually save money, it can go back into some of this building redevelopment. Right. So the dueling TMFs that you mentioned, the duel is between whom then? This is always an area that I think people in the past, legislators in the past, appropriators in particular, have used a little bit as a piggy bank, you know, because it's always easy to punt on the building modernization or the tech modernization. But in many ways, when we punt, all we are doing is simply increasing the long-term costs to the federal government and to the taxpayer, and it doesn't make good business sense. My guest is Virginia Senator Mark Warner. And with respect to the building modernization fund idea, that gets to the question of the return to work for the federal workforce. And there still seems to be a lot of uncertainty on the part of federal employees as what the final state will be with respect to telework how many days, where they work, and somehow it seems to tie in with the space requirements long-term. Yeah, I think it's time to get the vast majority of our federal workforce back to work. I do think back to work may mean, you know, I know that, for example, the SEC, I think, has ended up, they were in a negotiation that, you know, was going to, I think, by the demands of the workforce, uh, allow, you know, a couple days a week at least to be out of the office, maybe even up to three days. I've not followed the latest status, but I, I do think, to give our federal workers the predictability they need and they deserve, I hope we could get this resolved. You know, as an advocate of um, downtown Washington coming back to life, I, I hope people will get back. I have to tell you, I felt very strongly that my 40-plus people who work for me in Washington and you know around the Commonwealth of Virginia, that they need to be back in the office. We'll still allow some level of telecommuting, but I do feel like you know, I work for eight and a half million Virginians, and the vast majority of them do not have the ability to telework on a regular basis. And, and so we need to be in the office. And my fear is, you know, we got to get this settled down because whether it's, you know, IRS checks, whether it's social security checks, whether it's passports, there is a huge backup due to COVID. And the sooner we can get this resolved and get new systems in place in person and on a remote basis, I think the better for both federal workers, but also better for uh, the, the folks that we all serve. And for wherever they work, there are some pretty bold proposals in Congress now for the size of the pay raise that federal employees would get in 2023. What is your view of what should happen and what are the prospects there? I would like to see as, as healthy a pay raise as possible. I mean, you know, the last couple of years with COVID have been a real challenge. We know we've got inflation that's been eating into you know, federal workers' you know, purchasing power. So I hope some of us are going to be uh, making some of that proposal shortly. 
Uh, I'm not going to give it away today, but you know, I'm a big, big supporter of our federal workforce and believe they need the kind of uh, substantial pay raises to both retain our federal workers, but also to attract new ones. Virginia Senator Mark Warner, thanks so much for joining me. Tom, thank you so much. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Hello, I'm WIPA CEO Shane Canfield, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Lessons in Leadership. I'm honored to be joined by Angie Bailey, founder and CEO of Ananda Life. Angie has a remarkable career in public service, beginning as a GS2 clerk typist with the Social Security Administration. And over the next 40 years, Angie steadily worked her way up through the government, ultimately becoming the Chief Human Capital Officer at the Department of Homeland Security. She's been recognized with presidential rank awards by two administrations for leadership, innovation, dedication, and commitment to the country. Angie, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Shane. What a pleasure to be here. Angie, you've made quite a name for yourself as a leader in the federal workforce. Who was the first person you remember looking up to it? as a leader, and what about them inspired you? you no, know, I often think about this because, you know, sometimes we think of the people that we look up to the most as being somebody that throughout our career has, you know, been at the highest levels and all. But, I, you know, I've got to go back to honestly, whenever I was 10 years old, and uh, I remember I really wanted to play Little League baseball on a boys team. I was the only girl. And interestingly, it was the women who would keep saying to me that, no, I couldn't play. And then one day, whenever I was there to sign up yet again, uh, there was this guy, his name was Delbert Beiser. And uh, I remember he had like red hair and he had wadded tobacco in his mouth and greasy overhauls and everything. And he said, you know, I'll take her, I'll take her on my team. And, you know, just looking back on that, there's so many leadership lessons and things that I just really admire about him. And actually I thought about throughout my entire career, he took a chance on somebody he didn't know. He um, put aside whatever conscious or unconscious biases that he might have had about having a girl on a team. He treated me the same, uh, whether, you know, if I wasn't performing, I got benched just like the boys. I got no special treatment. And, and, and he was just really honest with me and he just included me in everything. And so looking back on it, you know, really, it was Delbert Beiser, our local mechanic in our little small village that was I think my inspiration for going on to, I hope, become the leader, um, you know, that, that I wanted to be. I'd say half of the guests on this podcast have had similar stories where they reach back to either childhood or young adulthood. And I, and I think as leaders, it's really incumbent upon us to keep that in mind, that, that what we say and do Admit it, especially in the younger ages, really can have a lifelong impact. How would you describe your leadership style and, and how has that developed over time? I would say that the one word that describes my leadership style is that I care. Um, I guess that's more than one word, but I care. Uh, I, I've always cared about the mission. I've always cared about the people. I've always cared you know, about making sure that that they had what they needed or that they were developing the way, uh, you know, that they aspired to develop. And I tried to take this approach of not treating people the way I wanted to be treated, but instead treat people the way they wanted, they want to be treated. And I think that that really kind of developed over my career. You know, I started out just like most leaders do where it's very results driven. It's all about the bottom line. You need to make sure that 
you get everything accomplished because, you know, that's what everybody's looking for, the goals, the metrics, et cetera. But I think as you mature and you go along, you start to, to your point, you draw back on those early childhood days or early adult young, you know, whenever you're a young adult and you say, you know, I think that there's a little bit more to this than just the bottom line. And so over time, I really began to, I, I think, see a much bigger picture and the entire ecosystem, if you will, and how the people themselves fit into all of this. And that ultimately, at the end of the day, it was all about the people. And so, I, you know, I think my, my maturity allowed me to then shift and focus more on the people than, than so much on results and bottom line. You've been recognized with two presidential rank awards two different administrations. You founded your own company. Tell us a little bit more about your background from the beginning and and how did that lead you to where you are today? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting, like you said, that I started out as a GS2, a social security administration. I mean, what I really wanted to be was a criminal prosecuting attorney. That was absolutely my dream. I sometimes joke and say what I really wanted to be was a mafia don, but that wasn't going to work out. So, you know, had to be a criminal prosecuting attorney. But, you know, I had to get a job to pay for college. I, you know, it wasn't in the cards that I was going to be able to go to college without a job. So I applied at the social Security Administration, or I'm sorry, at the unemployment office. And lo and behold, I got a job at Social Security. I didn't even know it was federal, to be honest. Uh, From there, I went to the Department of Defense and I found this, this career field called labor and employee relations. And honestly, it was as close as I was going to get to being a criminal prosecuting attorney. I didn't go on to be a, a criminal prosecuting attorney, but I went on courtesy of Department of Defense to get both my bachelor's and my master's in leadership, because the whole study of leadership, I just find incredibly fascinating. Um, you know, from hi- historical to current uh, current times, I just, it's just something that's just really fascinated me. And so I just, I would say I'm a lifelong learner of leadership. And then I would say some of the other things that got me maybe where I am today is I never really said no to anything. If people asked me to take on a new challenge, even if I wasn't sure I was going to be successful at it, I would say, you know what, not sure this is going to work out, but more than happy to give it a try. And it always worked out. But I think giving things a try and just not saying no to opportunities is what really led from one position to the next. I feel like I was always rewarded for just stepping in or stepping up and taking on the challenges that sometimes no one else wanted to do. Angie, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Shane. It's such a pleasure. I I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Thank you. This has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm CEO of WEPA, Shane Canfield. Looking forward to talking to you next time. As a parent, no two days are ever the same. And let's face it, sometimes a little extra help goes a really long way. That's what's so great about Care.com. They make it easier than ever to find local, experienced, and background-checked childcare to help manage your family's ever-changing needs and schedule. From nannies and babysitters to daycare centers and tutors, find help for long- or short-term support. Whether you need an after-school sitter or help with the homework, there's a large selection to choose from. And all caregivers who use Care.com are required to complete a background check before they're able to interact with families on the platform. It's so easy. Just go to Care.com and post a job for caregivers to apply. You can search for qualified candidates, read reviews and ratings, check their availability, and send messages directly. 
You can even find other kinds of care, including housekeepers, dog walkers, and caregivers for seniors. Find care for all you love. Sign up now and see why over 3 million families use Care.com. Visit Care.com today. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. 